So it's really, really great to, to, to be here with you this morning. I'm going to read verse, um, from verse 1 of chapter Acts, Acts 1 to 11. I think it's on the screen around, so uh, hopefully what I have in front of me will look like what you have on the screen. Let's, let's listen to the word of God with, with expectation and hope that God will speak. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven and after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then, he, then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. We thank God for his word. Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for your gift to us of the scriptures. We, we pray this morning as we gather in your presence, as we, we sit underneath the authority of your word, in your grace you would speak to us. You'd open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear what you're saying. That these wouldn't simply be, be the words of, of humans, but it'd be your word. So, Father, we pray that from this written word, written by our, our brother Luke, through the spoken word which I believe you've laid on my heart and my mind, Father, as your people, would we encounter the living word, which is your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I've already spoken to you a few this morning about the race across Canada, which has been on BBC. I haven't watched it. But when I moved here 17 years ago, I, I remember someone saying to me, is for Canadians, 100 kilometers, or, we, or in your language, 100 miles, is a short distance, but 100 years is a long time. For English people, 100 years is a very short amount of time, and 100 miles is a short distance. I want you to, to draw back a little bit 100 years ago, maybe a little bit more to the beginning of the 20th century. It was a, a, a century that started off in great hope and expectation. The scientific breakthroughs were, were making drastic improvements in travel, 
in, in medicine, and there was this great expectation that the scientific age would bring peace and prosperity to the world. That great hope was diminished a little bit 20 years, well, 14 years later, at the beginning of the First World War, dashed deeply in the Second World War. The scientific age, which brought about the splitting of the atom, brought the, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The end of, of the 20th century was really marked in 2001 with the falling of the collapse of the, the Twin Towers. This century, which started in great hope, ended in a lot of despair. This century that we are in now did not start with the same optimism that the previous one did. Marked by wars in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, the financial crash, the Arab Spring, which brought hope and then crashed, the Ukraine and, and Russia warfare, the taking of Crimea and what we're experiencing now, the crisis around the climate, the cost of living. It's, it's a, an era marked by deep despair. And as we were praying, someone prayed about the depression that we see around us. It is incredibly prevalent, the despair that we experience around us and see around us. It's everywhere. It's whoever you speak to. This, this time of despair and crisis has seeped into not only our culture, but our very lives. We're wondering where the hope is. I think that the time of, of Acts 1, which I read, was actually much more like this century than the previous one. It was a time of despair. The, the, the people of God, Israel, would, were under Roman rule. And Messiah after Messiah, or false Messiah after false Messiah, zealot after zealot, rose up against Rome and was quickly quashed. But here, the disciples get a little bit of a hope with, with Jesus. Not only was he a great speaker, he was gathering these crowds around him, but then their hope was dashed on Good Friday. The Messiah was crucified. And then, surprisingly to them, he was resurrected, and their hope was restored, and they thought they knew it was coming. As they spoke with the resurrected Jesus, is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? At this point, Jesus must have had a deep sigh. They had missed what he was about. The great French theologian John Calvin said, there are many errors in this question as there are words. They had missed what Jesus was doing. They had their hope set on something and they, if they didn't grasp what Jesus was doing, again, their hopes would be dashed. What they were hoping for was firstly a, a territorial kingdom, a, a, a physical land kingdom much like their, their great ancestor David had. And they're hoping that, that the, these borders would expand, that they would become the new Roman Empire, no longer being ruled from outside, but ruling from Jerusalem. They thought the hope would be not only a territorial kingdom, but an ethnic kingdom. Are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This was about God's chosen people, Israel. Are now we going to be the new nation? And thirdly, they thought it was going to be an instant kingdom. Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom 
of Israel. But Jesus undoes this question, not only with his words, but shortly after with his, his actions. But Jesus had not come to set up an earthly kingdom, one marked by worldly politics and worldly power, but a very different way of understanding kingdom. He called these disciples, who are, who are now being called in this chapter, apostles. He did not call these disciples to be governors or politicians to wield kingdom power, or world, uh, to, to wield worldly power. He chose these disciples to be apostles, which means messengers. The way in which the kingdom of Jesus would move and grow is very differently than the way the kingdoms of this world would grow. So he, he tells them, you know, you don't need to worry about the timing. It's not for you to know the hour or the time. Your Father in heaven has that under control. Leave your sense of timing aside. He said, I haven't chosen you to be politicians or govern, govern through, through politics. I've called you to be my witnesses to the gospel. And who have I sent you to? Their assumption would be they're going to be sent to the people of Israel. But Jesus says, no, you're going to be my witnesses, yes, in Jerusalem, and yes, in Judea, but also to Samaria, the enemies, to the ends of the earth. This is not going to be a territorial kingdom. It's not going to be an ethnic kingdom. It's going to be a worldwide movement and so wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We had mentioned already in the service that today is Ascension Sunday. And as good Anglicans, you've probably been marking that. As Baptists, we tend to ignore the church calendar at our great peril, mind you. The church calendar, I've come to see, is this beautiful thing that helps us give a rhythm and a shape to our lives marked by the story of Jesus. The year doesn't begin in January. It begins at, at Advent as we wait for the coming of Jesus. And we have these great songs about the incarnation and Advent. And then it's Christmas. And we'll, again, we, we all know the great lovely songs about Christmas taught, teaching us about Emmanuel God with us. We have great songs about Good Friday. We have great songs about Resurrection Sunday. Pentecost even, as Anglicans, you might need to help me understand ascension. What do we do with ascension? It is, I think, one of those biggest events in the life of Jesus that as Christians, we, we don't quite know what to do with. We, we ignore it, we put it to the side. Again, I think we do that at our, our peril. Our, is, is this series that you guys are going through in the book of Acts? Just in the book of Acts. So um, you might have already covered this, although for some reason you've started Acts and we're now still in Acts 1. Uh, it's called Acts, and it depends on, on, on your Bible. I, I did look at mine. The one that I study, when, when I open up, it, it says Acts of, of the Apostles, which is a good name for it. As we read through the, the, the 28 chapters of Acts, we see the Apostles at work. We, we see what they did, and we, we, we get what they, they taught. And it's a great name. 
It's actually one of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the book of Acts from the fourth century, just simply has Acts as the title, although in Greek. But this question has always been, been niggling at, 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 at theologians, why is it called Acts? And most of us say it's called the Acts of the Apostles. There was an 18th century theologian from Europe who said, no, it's actually we should call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because right, so, the Acts of the Apostles make, make it very world, uh, human-centered, and he's like, we, we should focus on, on, on the Holy Spirit because he comes in Pentecost and he equips and empowers the church. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. John Stott, when he was reflecting on this, he gave the book of Acts a, a much longer title. He said, These, we should call it the words and deeds of the exalted Jesus by his Spirit through his chosen apostles. Why, he says, we should call it the Acts of Jesus rather than the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit is how he starts this, this letter or this, this book to a guy he calls Theophilus. He says in his first book, which we know is the, the, the Gospel of Luke, he, he talks about what, what Jesus began to do and teach. I'll, I'll read that when I can find it. I had to read from your version rather than my, my special version. But it's in the first book, O Theophilus, I, I've dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And he's been given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles who he'd chosen. So what's implied here is I began to tell you what Jesus did and taught there, but now I'm continuing to tell you what he did and taught after he was resurrected and, and ascended. Jesus, when he ascends to heaven, does not stop acting on earth, but he acts in a very different, exciting, and liberating way. He ascends to commission and enable the church to fulfill its mission. He ascends to enable you to fulfill your mission as we were reflecting in this parish. The exalted Jesus is not absent or silent or inactive. He's very present in the mission of God. We as his church are called to partner in with the exalted, ascended Jesus in what he is doing now and here. What the ascension does is it creates a space for the church to preach the gospel and see people repent so that when he comes, he will find a, a church full of people who love him, who will seek to spend eternity with him, rejoicing in his name. Without the ascension, we would have gone straight into the judgment of Christ. But the ascension has given a pause for the proclamation of the gospel and the repentance of humanity. We are a New Testament church. We are the New Testament church here. I should have started by saying, actually, Wesley passes their, their love and hello on, on to you. I think in September, we're, we're borrowing Mike for... for for a Sunday as well. One of the things that, that I'm really, really passionate about as a minister in South End is, is to partner with churches who love Jesus, who love the gospel, and who want to see lives transformed by the gospel. I'm not particularly concerned with denominations. Although I happen to be a Baptist and 
I, I am quite Baptist. You'll, you'll excuse me. One of my other things that I love is Baptist history. So I'm a nerd. We won't go too much into it, but just a little bit, if, if it's all right. When the Baptist movement started in, in the 17th century, there was this deep desire as the Bible was being translated into the common language of those around them. Those in England who were reading the Bible had this deep desire that they wanted to be as close to the New Testament church as they, they could be. They wanted not only their practices to align with the New Testament practices, they wanted their beliefs to align with the New Testament practices. And so they just spent so much of their time in Acts and the Gospels trying to think, what are we supposed to do as the church? And they, they had this deep affinity to the first century, the biblical church, saying this is what we want to be like. And so when they, when they looked at the New Testament church in the Bible, they said, that's us. How can we be like that? My guess is that that's our heart. How can we do what they did? We see the book of Acts starts with maybe about 120 Christians, and by best guesses, by the end of the book, which happens about to be about 30 years later, best guess, there's 10,000 Christians. That is a massive growth. How can we see that? What do they know that we don't know? I'm not going to give you a, like a three-step plan of how to be the New Testament church. But as it's Ascension Sunday, and we're in the Acts 1, the first chapter of Acts, I want us to reflect on what they knew and what they had that we might see ourselves in them. See, everyone struggles, every Christian struggles to live up to what Jesus calls us to do. We know that Jesus calls us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, or whatever that means for us, for South End and, and Shoeburyness and Basildon and London and the rest of the earth. We know that God is calling us to be witnesses there, but we don't quite know how to do that, and we're quite terrified. Fear is, is the big thing that often stops us from being witnesses to Jesus, and, and the apostles were, were not exempt from fear. When Jesus had the, the, his greatest time of need on Good Friday, they desert him, or most of them desert him. They're fearful because they're trying to protect their lives. One of the, the, the big reasons why I, I've come to be so convinced by the resurrection is the dramatic change that happened in the life of, lives of the apostles. On Good Friday, they ran away trying to protect themselves. At Pentecost, they run into danger, willing to face whatever comes their way. They were so concerned at protecting their lives, and then 50 days later, they're willing to lose it for the name of Jesus. What happened to them to have that remarkable change? The answer is they, they met the resurrected Jesus. There was no longer a fear of death, but something had transformed. The death had no hold on them that they found something more important to live for than their own lives. Until we see what they have, we will not be able to be like the New Testament church. See, before Good Friday, the apostles were seeing that their life was being about an earthly kingdom with earthly power, with earthly control, and so 
what they needed to do most of all in order to reign on earth was, was to protect their lives because you can't reign on earth if you're dead. And then they encounter the resurrected Jesus and everything changes. The first thing that they knew is that Jesus rose from the dead and that changed for them everything. They needed to be convinced. Acts 1 says Jesus gave them tons of proofs because although they met him several times, it seems like they couldn't believe their eyes. And, and one of the things that we do as a church is we, we gather every Sunday on resurrection, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, to remind ourselves that Jesus rose from the dead because everything in us is telling us it didn't happen. And so we need to find these rhythms and patterns to our lives to remind us Jesus is not dead. That's why we meet today, to remind ourselves Jesus isn't dead, he's alive. One of the greatest fears that humanity has is the fear of death. And it's something as Christians that we, we need to know is that death is not the end. The resurrection has, has made a death to death. I'm not sure if you guys know of the, the American theologian pastor, Tim Keller. It's someone who made a big impact on me, and I think it was yesterday he went to be with the Lord. I can't remember the tweet that his son sent out exactly, but one of the things that, that Tim Keller said as he was dying is, it's no sad thing that I'm leaving. The resurrection gr grasped him, and he was able to say in the face of death, this, it's no sad thing that I'm dying. Most people that you meet, your neighbors, your colleagues, are terrified of death, and they need not be, because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul writes to the Philippians, he wants to know one thing. He wants to know the power of the resurrection. And the resurrection of Jesus changes absolutely everything. Resurrection puts a death to death. One of the predominant understandings of, of the world, deeply impacted by Plato, and I won't go too much into it, is that physicality is bad and spirituality is good. But the resurrection says physicality is really good and spirituality is really good. Jesus did not raise just in a spiritual body, but a physical body who ate fish. He touched people. He told Thomas, put your hands in my side, in my hands, and feel that I, I am real. The resurrection that we proclaim is not just a spiritual resurrection of a ghostly Jesus, but a physical resurrection. At the heart, on the foundation of who we are as a church, it's built on the physical resurrection of Jesus. That's the first thing that the New Testament church knew. The second thing that they knew were the teachings of Jesus. For the 40 days after the resurrection till his ascension, he was teaching them in the Holy Spirit. He was telling them what to believe and what to do. Jesus' commands can be summed up very easily in love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just to know the word of God, but to put it into practice. And we see throughout the book of Acts that this is what the church did. They studied the word and they put it into action. They did not just proclaim the gospel, they lived out the effects of the gospel. They didn't just proclaim the, the gospel to, to the poor, they loved and cared for and met the needs of the poor. 
They did not just ignore it, nor the rich or, or show favoritism to the rich. They, they called the rich to repentance. The church studied the word, not just to gain knowledge, but to experience the transformation of the teaching of Jesus. It's one of the reasons why I love the word of God, because it transforms. It's not dead, it's alive. So as a church, we need to be founded on the resurrection, and we need to be found, founded, strengthened, built on the foundation of the scriptures. It is our authority. It's a hard time for the churches now to wrestle with, and, and it's one of the, the ways I've been really blessed by, by connection with, with St. Michael's and, and now St. John's is I, I see in you as churches an affinity of people, again, who love the resurrection, love Jesus, love the Bible, and are committed to its transforming power. But we can know about the resurrection. We can know everything that the Bible talks about. And this is what the disciples had. But they had to wait for another thing. They had to wait for the pouring out of the Spirit upon the church to do what God had called them to do. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit that was poured about upon the church at Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, is what gives a drive and an impetus and a new life, a breath of fresh air into a resurrected people and a people built on the foundation of the Scriptures. If we do things in our own strength, in our own ability, we might make a temporary difference, but it will not make a lasting difference. My guess is you are a very gifted church with lots of wonderful people who can serve in many ways. If you do it in your own strength, you will build nothing. It will go nowhere. You will have a nice map and nothing will happen. We need to be reliant on the Spirit of God to lead, guide, and direct. You're gonna have some good ideas, but they may not be God ideas. And it's great to hear that you are a praying church, and it is there where God will begin to move in you, where you see where God is calling you, not only to proclaim the resurrection, but to teach what Jesus taught, to live as Jesus lived, and there we will begin to see the transformation that the New Testament church saw. The great hope of many of, of this generation which are marked by despair is by a worldly power. There's so many of us that believe that if, if the right legislation comes in, then things will happen. If we get the right politician in and the wrong politician out, then we'll begin to see, see real transformation. As long as we get Christians as MPs or as mayors or counselors, really then we will begin to see the Spirit of God move. No. The way of worldly power is about control and manipulation. We might bend people to our will. We might bend people to our ethic but they will not be transformed. The way of this world, the power of this world, the politics of this world will make no transformation apart from the resurrection of Jesus, the word of God 
preached, proclaimed, and shared, and the people filled with the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of Jesus is about a transformation through his spirit, through the proclaiming of the resurrection. That is where we'll see the hope of the world. We don't see the apostles trying to become governors or politicians. They are messengers. One more Baptist quote. There's this German Baptist, and Germans can be Baptist too. My wife's German, by the way, so, yeah. But he, but he said, Yadis Baptist is I miss now, which means every Baptist is a missionary. In reality, every Christian is a missionary. Every Christian is a witness to the resurrected Jesus. We need a movement of people, young women and young men, old women and old men, who are committed to proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, not only with their words, but their lives. Studying the scriptures that they might know how to live in a dark and unjust world, filled and empowered by the Spirit. It is there where we begin to see transformation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you transform lives, and by your grace, you've transformed our lives, and we've heard stories of that. Father, as, as Alpha begins in next month, would you bring about transformation in those lives who don't know you yet? Father, for, for us here who are fearful of what it might mean to proclaim the resurrection, would you give us such an assurance of the resurrection that, that would give us an assurance that nothing can be taken from us? That the, the thing that can be most taken away from us is our lives, but we can say it is no sad thing that we are leaving. Father, empower us by your spirit, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.